example. So what if someone was born, you know, in a jungle somewhere? To be born upon fitrah suggests that we're born with some natural, a set of natural cognitive mm. capacities or yeah. abilities. Is the term reversion the right term then to use for your journey? And they say, no, no, brother, you didn't convert. You reverted. Thinking can get us into trouble. This is the Thinking Muslim podcast. It's the Thinking Muslim podcast. Modernity brings with it the promise that ultimate truth can come through reason, a reason that often excludes believers as outside the realm of thinking. Liberalism places religion in a non-reasoned bucket, which should be tolerated like all other irrational but ultimately comforting lifestyle choices. This is primarily why there is general animus against anyone that displays an over-exuberance towards belief systems. Such people are described as fundamentalists, unthinking and unable to make their own rational choices. My guest today is no stranger to these arguments. Jamie Turner is currently pursuing his doctoral research at the University of Birmingham, looking at Ibn Taymiyyah and natural theology. Jamie Turner, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and jazakallah khair for joining us. It's great to have you with us. And I really appreciate your writings on this topic uh, that we're going to cover today on the fitra and whether we're hardwired to believe in a God and what does it really mean to have iman in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and whether reason plays a part in that journey. So today I would like to explore how we come to that belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that idea of fitra. And I suppose some of the common arguments we find out there against a belief in a God. So let's start with the concept of fitra. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Uh, how does Islam define human nature, Jamie? We know that there is an inbuilt capacity that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us to recognize him. So explain this idea of fitrah to me. So, yeah, the idea of, of, of fitrah um, in the Islamic tradition has different interpretations. So different theologians have looked at fitrah differently. Hmm. The way that I look at fitrah um, is influenced by a medieval uh, theologian, Ibn Taymiyyah. Mm. Um, but the concept of fitrah is first and foremost Quranic. So um, in the 30th chapter, in the 31st uh, of the Quran, portion of that verse uh, reads, fatara which basically denotes the idea that God fashioned or created human beings upon a certain nature. Mm. So um, in my mind, this is not particularly controversial. Uh, the idea that we as human beings have a basic nature that's common to us, uh, mm. that we share or participate in makes sense because um, how otherwise would we identify one another as fellow human, uh, fellow human beings if we didn't have uh, a common nature? Mm. And so that, that's one uh, angle. Um, I, I mean, I'll, I'll approach it from that angle in a second. Yeah. But there's, a, there's another element to this. Um, there's another verse in the Quran which Muslim theologians like Ibn Taymiyyah sometimes connect to uh, fitrah, which is sometimes called the verse of the primordial covenant. Mm. So there is this verse in the Quran in the seventh chapter in the 172nd verse um, and a portion of, uh, of, of that verse basically sets up this scenario where God is addressing all of human beings prior to them being created in the world. Mm. So we could think of that as them being in, in, in the form of their soul or in their immaterial right. state. Yeah. And, and God addresses human beings and, and says, Alestu birabbikum, am I not your Lord? Mm. Um, to which humans reply, Qalu uh, bala. Shahidna, um, they say, yes, we bear witness. Wow. So what's the relationship then between this idea that God created all of human beings upon a certain nature and then this idea of a, of a primordial covenant with mm. God? Well, the way that I see the relationship in following Ibn Taymiyyah is that basically we can, we can look at fitrah from, from a cognitive point of view. Mm. So we can, we can think of fitrah as referring to um, our basic human nature with respect to our cognitive abilities or capacities, such as reason, perception, memory, introspection, maybe intuition or a moral sense if we have one. Um, if we think about all human beings, generally speaking, they have these capacities just given their very nature, or as we say, given their very fitra. Mm. Uh, and an additional capacity as per this primordial covenant is this basic theistic disposition that we have. So it's as if God has fashioned us upon a certain nature and the remnants of this primordial covenant remain within our human nature. So in addition to reason, perception, memory, and so on, we also have this basic theistic disposition, yeah. um, which is inbuilt within fitrah, so to speak. And 
this again is 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 interesting and not necessarily that controversial because uh, recently in the cognitive science of religion um thinkers have basically come to a consensus that 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 theistic belief or belief in god is somehow natural uh to human beings uh, and there are various different ways of of spelling this out but i'll just mention one mm-hmm. one way so um some cognitive science religions uh say that human beings in their more primitive state uh during their evolutionary history um basically developed certain cognitive abilities to think to reason to perceive and so on and and one of those abilities um is to detect agency to detect whether there's an agent maybe a predator maybe another human being maybe their prey um and they call this special ability a agency detection device so we have this sort of inbuilt um capacity so if you imagine human beings again in their more primitive state maybe if they were to hear rustling in the bushes or a, a thud in the night or uh, maybe tracks on the ground or crop circles human beings developed this ability to detect these mm. as um instances of an agent being involved and so formed uh, agency based beliefs mm. i.e. there's uh, an animal that's been around or that's uh, forthcoming or a human being um and then these cognitive sciences of uh, these cognitive scientists of religion also say that there's this second ability which is called a theory of mind which works in tandem with this agency detection device which layers on the kind of uh characteristics or attributes of this agent so how does this connect to belief in god well something could say that where there are certain maybe uh, patterns in nature um or instances of fortune or misfortune or coincidences and human beings have not been able to reasonably attribute a uh, physical natural agent in those instances human beings have naturally attributed that to a kind of metaphysical or supernatural source so i think that lends some credence to the idea of this primordial covenant and the idea that yeah there's a connection there so if i've understood you right you've got uh these mental capacity you've got the ability to reason and to think your cognitive abilities as you describe yep. them but on top of that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has hardwired within human beings this human nature this fitra which brings them closer to a belief in a metaphysical being a belief in a uh in a in a creator in in a being outside of man and the universe um i wonder how much so for example i was sent a, a, a i don't know a picture the other day of aliens uh places in the world where uh, you've had alien sightings mm-hmm. and uh, the majority of of supernatural alien sightings of either in Europe or North America. So you don't get very many alien UFO sightings in Africa or in Europe, in Central Asia or in, is that because these are societies that have moved away from a belief in God yet they've got this hardwired fitra which what which is urging them or which provokes them to to believe in something that is supernatural in inverted commas and so they they're replacing one one 
belief, the correct belief, we would say, with an incorrect belief. Is that is is Fitra within that? Have I got that analysis right? Yeah, potentially. So just to, to take a back step a minute, yeah. um, what I was really trying to articulate uh, a moment ago is that Fitra is just our basic human nature, but ah. part of that human nature is our human cognitive nature. So the it refers to the various cognitive abilities that we have, as I said, reason, memory, perception, so on. Mm. And in my view, our, say, theistic disposition or faculty is just one, one of those many capacities that we have in virtue of our very nature. Yeah. Now, yeah, it may be the case that um, as human beings develop and form certain concepts, such as the concept of aliens or, mm. or other similar agents, that um, when they see patterns or instances of um, design or what looks like to be uh, an instance of an agent being involved in the world, um, the theory of mind, which does the filling out, which works to fill out the details as to what the nature of that agent is, mm. um, that could make reference to concepts that we've formed um, more recently, such as the concept of aliens and so right, on. Right. And so, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it is the case that uh, as the, the, the um, concept of God has, has uh, shifted away, um, maybe uh, other concepts have been brought in and uh, they're attributing instances of, of design or something to some of the creatures. Mm. Um, yeah. So, so again, to, just for clarification, the relationship then between, uh, between Fitra, or at least this aspect of Fitra, which is to, to have a propensity to, to come closer to a god or to believe in a god, and the other cognitive abilities like you know the ability to reason and to yeah. think and to see and to hear um the relationship is that um well what is the relationship do the, does uh, the, does fitra uh push you to think uh about the nature of uh this feeling you have towards a creator and then the thinking process takes over or is is the process far more intertwined yeah, so there's a couple of ways of thinking about it. One way would be to think about our nature as having this disposition to form our beliefs in God. Yes. And that disposition is manifest through the use of reason and perception and the like. So that there's not this separate faculty, ah, okay. not reason, perception, memory, intuition, plus theistic faculty. Ah. Maybe the disposition is connected to our general cognitive abilities. Yeah. Or one might think, no, actually we have a, a separate additional mm. uh, faculty. Um, I think the account that I was just uh, mentioning a moment ago from Cognitive Science of Religion yeah. um, suggests that, no, it's not as if we have this one theistic faculty, but that the disposition to believe in God um, comes out through different capacities working in tandem. Um, you know, we as Muslims needn't necessarily uh, agree with that, but that's just one account. So how different is that to uh, the Mu'tazila view, which I understand, I mean, from with my when I was researching this program, their view is that the fitra and the mind are one in the same. The fitra is really, what, this hadith that you mentioned in the ayah, the, the ayah, sorry, the that ayah, you yeah. mentioned, uh, there 
really referencing the human mind. Um, the human mind has the ability to to bring someone to a creator, and that's what the fitra is. I mean, how different is your view to that Mu'tazila view? Yeah, so I think it, I think it is different. Mm. I mean, I think in what I said, you know, if we go back to the to the the first ayah which I mentioned, I mean, it seems to me reading that ayah and in again, as I said, following Ibn Taymiyyah, yeah. um, that God has fashioned human beings upon a particular nature, mm. and it's part of that nature that we have certain cognitive capacities. Um, and so I'm, I wouldn't be equating fitra with the mind, but mm. with this basic human nature, uh-huh. which, um, you know, is endowed with certain cognitive abilities, uh, such as reason, perception, memory, and the like. I understand. So what's it? So, um, there's a hadith, uh, related yeah. by Abu Huraira, where, uh, with famous hadith, we always use it. No mm. child is born but that he's upon the natural instinct. His parents make him a Jew or a Christian or a Magian. Um, um, so that hadith seems to point out that we are all born upon Islam or fitra, and it's our parents who corrupt us, who change us, who make us into, uh, who take us away from the truth. Explain that hadith in relation to this whole discussion about fitra to me. Yeah, so that, that hadith is famous and it's always an important one when we're talking about fitra, of course. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the hadith is saying that every child's born upon fitra and as you said, it's the parents of the Jew, the, the Christian, the Zoroastrian mm. that basically socialize this particular child into a certain uh, religious tradition. And so that suggests that although we have this basic nature and that nature might incline us toward Islam in some sense. Now we have to be careful here and and, and be precise. For instance, Ibn Taymiyyah, when he comments on this hadith, he says that by Islam, um, if we were to say that a child's born upon Islam by Islam, he just means la ilaha illallah, that there is to recognize that there is no God worthy of worship except the one true God. Um, but so, I mean, what I would want to say about this this hadith is that it suggests to me that there are certain limits or constraints on how we understand fitra. Mm. So um, consider again that I was saying that uh, to be born upon fitra suggests that we're born with some natural, a set of natural cognitive mm. capacities or yeah. abilities. Yeah. Now, it seems to me that we are born with these capacities and they have a certain way that they're supposed to function and they incline us to form certain certain beliefs. So for instance, my perceptual faculties have been disposed to form beliefs in my immediate environment mm. that when I look, I will form a belief in a cup, in a tablet and uh, in, in you being in front of me and so on. Mm. Um, it would be very odd if I was forming um beliefs that this is all a, a, an illusion or um suppose i came to form the belief that none of this is real the external world you know it's it's not real or that uh, i was created five minutes ago with uh, in, uh with an implanted implanted memories of events that never happened and so on hmm. that just doesn't seem to be the way that we ought to think right. uh, as per human beings so we have fitra, we have these capacities, and we're inclined to think in a certain way. 
But I think we have certain responsibilities as, as, as cognitive agents and the environments that we're in, and this mm. comes back to that fitra, mm. uh, the hadith on fitra, the environment that we're in could um, impact our cognitive abilities. So can just consider a simple example of a car. Right? A car works well in certain environments. Right. It doesn't work well in snow very often. People experience that. It doesn't work well underwater, yeah. right? But likewise, our cognitive capacities don't work well in all environments. Consider that um, if we just blacked out this room, mm. uh, I wouldn't be reliable in forming beliefs about true beliefs about things in the room. Mm. Or if I'm, you know, in a, a place where there's high altitude mm. and I have access to little oxygen, or if I'm underwater and so on, these are not conducive to me forming true beliefs, right. uh, perceptual beliefs. Right, so we need to be in the right kind of environment for our cognitive capacities to work well, given their nature, given the way that they've been set up as per fitrah. So if that works for perceptual faculties, maybe the same for our theistic capacity or disposition. So maybe if we're in certain environments which are particularly, say, hostile to theistic belief, or try to stifle it, um, or social groups in which conspiracies uh, are widespread maybe these epistemic environments will not be conducive for us to form true beliefs about about god yeah. um from a muslim point of view a non-favorable or non-conducive epistemic environment for our um, theistic disposition might be a radically atheistic society but it also might be um a society in which a tradition proliferates other than Islam. Mm. Um, and then there's another aspect to this, which is what we do as cognitive agents. So going back to the car example, the car doesn't work well in certain environments, but it also doesn't work well if we do not use the car properly, if we can't drive well, for instance. Mm. It also seems to me that our cognitive capacities, which we have given our nature, given our fitra, will not be good at getting us true beliefs if we don't adopt certain characteristics like being truth-seeking, being open-minded, um, being courageous enough to maybe challenge our beliefs or to consider the evidence or being firm enough in our belief to test it. Mm. If people just give up their beliefs willy-nilly, they, they haven't given it enough chance to see if it stands up to scrutiny. So there are also practices that perhaps we need to adopt to enable our theistic disposition to come through. I think in this context, um, say a desire to seek God sincerely, a, a kind of longing for God, yearning for God. Like Ibrahim alayhi salam or right. Exactly. Yeah. So um, the limits on fitra in the sense, if we're thinking of fitra as referring to this fitri theistic disposition, yes. the limits pertain to the, the environment and also what we do as agents. In, so hence in, in, the hadith, if you're born, you're born upon fitra, but it's, so you're born with this theistic capacity, mm -hmm. but it's your parents who really socialize you into a particular faith, and that faith may be, according to us, according to Muslims, an incorrect faith. Right. Um, okay, so what if someone, I, I'm just trying to understand the limits of fitra a little bit more. So what if someone was born, you know, in a jungle somewhere, right? And... Um, you know, so born in a state of nature, doesn't yeah. really have uh, people around him or her to socialize them into a particular faith. 
is that person born of course according to the hadith the person is born on fitra so does that person have the ability just with those the capacities that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave them to come to a faith in God mm -hmm. good question it, it reminds me of this famous philosophical tale of Hayy ibn Yaqdan written by Ibn Tufayl uh, and it's about this Ibn Tufayl is Ibn Tufayl yeah he's a, an Andalusian philosopher oh. um, and yeah he was a, around a similar time to Ibn Rushd okay and he um, so he's a medieval philosopher and he wrote this philosophical tale about a young boy who's basically born on a desert island and um, is raised amongst the animals mm -hmm. uh, in a state of nature mm. uh, and yet in pondering on creation and so on and in developing an ability to interact with animals developing language and then reason and so on gets ultimately to a belief in, in a creator yeah. now that's a pretty optimistic view from Ibn Tufayl yeah um I'm not so sure that I'd be that optimistic. I think mm. that it's definitely true as per the hadith of Charles Bonham Fitra. It's also the case, as I said earlier, that cognitive scientists of religion um, are saying that humans, even in their more primitive state, are developing this agency detection device, right? So there's no reason to think that this particular person in the state of nature wouldn't have that kind of device. But at the same time, there does seem to be this need for revelation, this mm. need for guidance from God. Mm. Um, if we are to form uh, true beliefs about God, uh, if we're to form them reliably, then we need a bit of help, uh, it seems to me. And, and that's the point of, of God sending us prophets and sending us revelation um, so that we're getting these, these concepts from God and they're shaping the way that we think about him appropriately and, and, and reliably. So does the, rev the role of revelation, is it to shape our belief in a creator? Okay, yes, in the details, it, it certainly is. And we can't understand Allah and his attributes without the revelation. But back to fitra, doesn't fitra work separate to revelation in the sense that fitra... Uh, gives us the recognition or pushes us or desires. We desire to believe in a God through this invite. And that's what, what urges us to seek revelation. So is that, if I got the logic right there, that revelation comes to, uh, to satisfy that urge which already exists within the human being. And that urge is the fitra. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, Ibn Taymiyyah, for instance, uh, he basically says that that revelation in the form of prophets and God's word comes to perfect fitra. Mm. So I think, I mean, the way that you put it, that we have this urge, yeah. and this basic disposition to recognize God, and then revelation comes to fulfill that, to match yeah. that, right. and to help us to form beliefs about God appropriately. And of course, uh, you know, our relationship to God is, is not primarily cognitive, it is, um, you know, partly cognitive, but it's also existential uh, and to do with, uh, you know, worship as well. So, uh, you know, revelation comes um, to, you know, uh, push us towards uh, the praise and gratitude of God as well as yeah. thinking about him properly. Jamie, I want to go back to that hadith that we are born in a state of fitra and then our parents come along and they 
change us and make us okay right so of course today i think a lot of muslims interpret that to mean that we're born muslims in the dini sense right we are muslims and someone like yourself who becomes a muslim at the age of 17 i think it is you know as, as a teenager you've returned back to your fitrah right so you have reverted to islam right so you were a muslim your parents or your environment you were from leeds so you know your shopping center and your environment made you whoever you were right. and at the age of 17 your fitra urged you to inquire more about your existence or gave you that you know that impression that you need to find out more and then you used your mind and your faculties and you came to the correct true conclusion which is islam so is the term reversion the right term then to use for your journey yeah it's interesting i like this question i mean it often happens to me that i speak to people for the first time taxi drivers mm. and i tell them that you know i converted to islam or yeah. something and they say, no, no, brother, you didn't convert. You reverted. Yes. And um, People are quite exercised about these two words. I they see. really are. Yeah. yeah, they're quite passionate about it. Yeah. But I, I often feel that the way in which Muslims are using it is probably not quite right. Ah. So there's a sense in which it is right to say that we reverted to fitrah. For instance, if we were an atheist or we belong to another religious tradition, um, that is antithetical to Islam, there's a sense in which we're reverting back to this original pristine nature, fitrah, which inclines us to belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Mm -hmm. But that, I mean, I think as I mentioned earlier, say Ibn Taymiyyah, when he comments on this hadith, yeah. basically says that fitrah refers to Islam in the sense of la ilaha illallah, that there is no God except Allah. Mm. Um, that's a bit different from the deen of Islam, deen of Islam, mm. the, the religion itself. So it's not as if children were born with uh, beliefs in Islamic doctrines uh, and were adhering to a school of law or uh, recognizing certain uh, rituals as mm. obligatory upon them or something. Mm. It seems to me that it's more appropriate to think of us actually converting Dean wise, mm. right? That we left a particular way of life for another, a new one. Mm. Um, so revert to fitrah, maybe convert to Islam though, I think. Mm. And so I think generally speaking, convert's probably more uh, correct. Okay, that's, I think that makes a lot of sense. And that sits more comfortably with me actually in the way I understand fitrah and understand Islam as a deen. But I know that, I note that there are some scholars who argue that fitrah is a thicker concept a bigger idea than just maybe Ibn Taymiyyah's version of fitrah. Fitrah inclines you not just towards a creator, but also inclines you towards the ahkam sharia. So for example, if you see, I don't know, someone, a Muslim praying and you're a non-Muslim, your fitrah is, is provoked. You, you see that to be a, a correct manifestation of your human nature. Or if you see, I don't know, the... Uh, I don't know, let's find the payment of zakah, you know, uh, of charity that inclines you towards Islam. I mean, is there anything mm. within that understanding that you could you could ac accommodate as a as a Taymiyan? Yeah, well, I, I mean, Ibn Taymiyyah's uh, idea of what concept of fitrah is, is 
thicker than what I've been saying. I ah. mean, there is more to it. Yeah. One of the things that Ibn Taymiyyah is quite clear about is that as per our fitrah, we have a capacity to form certain moral judgments. So we have a moral sense of what's right and what's wrong ah. or what's good and what's bad. Yeah. So perhaps, for instance, the zakah example, giving in, in charity, say, um, paying our alms, that is recognized by us naturally as a praiseworthy and valuable and worthwhile thing to do, mm. a good thing. So um, maybe there is some relation there. Maybe uh, it um, resonates with our moral sense or intuition, which we have as per our fitrah. Mm. So perhaps, yeah, we could, you know, draw that relationship in those instances. So someone could be inclined towards, I mean, I, so, you know, I, I, um, uh, I would like to ask you a little bit about your journey then, like, you became a Muslim at a, quite an early age, I would say, yep, you know, at 17 definitely. years old. So, you know, how, how, I'm sure everyone asks you this, but in relation to Fitra, how did you become a Muslim? Like, looking back, did the, the idea of Fitra play a part in that journey you had when mm -hmm. you came to Islam? I think it did. I yeah. think it did. I mean, I was raised in a, a typical British family, not religious. Um, and say me and my brother, for example, raised in the same home, very, very different. But I had this, um, this yearning for, for philosophical questions, maybe. Why am I here? Where am I going? What's the point? Yeah. Even when I was no about... No one provoked that. You just had that in you. I think, yeah, I mean... Clearly, when I went to, I mean, when I went to primary school, I learned about religion and learned about Christianity and other religions. Mm. But I seem to have this natural inclination to just ponder and wonder, even when I was about seven, like, yeah. what, what's the point of all this? Why do I exist? Yeah. And as I said, I wasn't raised, raised in a religious household, but I had, I, I had a copy of the Bible in my house, you know, um, even though it wasn't really to be there to be read. Mm. But, um, and I used to try and open it and have a look and I didn't understand what's going on about with Gentiles and Pharisees and this, that and the other when I was very little. So it was a bit confusing. But I remember stumbling upon the, uh, one of the verses which, which basically says, um, seek and you will find, knock and the, and the door will be open for you. Mm. And I think I was quite taken aback by that, that verse because I was thinking to myself, I want, I desire to know God. I want to have this relationship with God, and so that's the fitrah. And then reading this biblical verse, it gave me some optimism. Maybe actually it's possible. Yeah. Maybe if I do seek, I will find. Um, yeah. What is the role of the mind in this whole process in arriving at a belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? So we've talked about fitrah, and we've said that we're inclined towards God. Uh, does the mind have any part to play in that journey to become a Muslim and a believer? Yeah, I mean, I think like by the, by the mind, do you mean re, reason, reason, the fact of reason? Yeah, yeah. yeah. because I think, I think of the mind as just more generally encompassing like cognition, more generally, okay. our ability to think. Okay. Uh, reason I would see as like a more specific faculty, right. like the ability to recognize logically self-evident truth that one had one is two or to form inferences right. um, and so on. So sometimes people think when we talk about believing God by way of fitrah yes. that reason 
necessarily takes a back seat. It's a blind faith. And, or yeah, something like that. An emotional uh, experience, mm -hmm. a spiritual experience brings you to God. Yeah, but I, I wouldn't look at it like that. No. So I think, so if we just consider again our other um, faculties. Mm -hmm. So like memory, mm -hmm. say um, I could be having a conversation with you and I'm trying to get you to remember something. And, and I'd say, well, oh, do you remember when we met that time, you know, a few years ago and we're at that restaurant and there was that guy in the corner, that funny looking man, whatever we were talking about. And, and you're struggling to remember it, but I'm trying to prompt you. And maybe there's a particular detail that I mentioned. Then you go, ah, yes, I remember now. Yes. That's memory. Perception. If I want, if we're out, maybe we're in, we're in the forest and we're, maybe we're, we're bird watching, bird spotting. I don't know if hmm. you're interested in that. I'm not saying I have. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. But suppose we were, and I'm trying to help you see what I can see, I would try and draw your attention towards something, some feature in our external environment. So I'm yeah. prompting your perceptual faculties right. to form certain beliefs. Right. So I think that reason or rational reflection, mm. say pondering uh, the natural world, yeah. thinking about um, certain features of it, how it seems to be well put together or designed, how it seems to be contingent and, and other features, that might act as a prompt for our fitri of uh, fitri, yeah, theistic disposition right. to come through. So there is that relationship there. Um, there is another aspect, which is suppose we form a belief in God by way of fitra naturally, but we are, um, we're faced with certain objections um, to our belief in God. Um, reason will come in there as well to uh, repel such objections, say, that we have to respond to them reasonably if we want to be reasonable in continuing to believe in God. Yeah. So I think those are two ways to think about how reason is still an important part of the process, even if you're believing by way of fitla. You know, you hear a lot uh, that, uh, and I know this is a, a debate within traditional Islam as to how one arrives at 
at a belief in a creator. And there is a school that argues that reason is really integral to that. And there's a school that argues it's mm. not so important for that. But um, from your perspective, and maybe from Ibn Taymiyyah's perspective, um, uh, does reason allow us, because we, we've said that Fitra is quite limited. It brings you to, it prompts you, it urges you, it pushes you. But then you need to solidify that that uh, that conclusion, and so does reason play a very important role in coming to a belief in God? Like, would you say that reason is the other half of that belief? Without reason, there is a there is a weakness in the iman, maybe. Mm. So there are a couple of things there. Um, so the first thing about um, say. I mean, you said that that, that fitrah is limited to some extent. I mean, it is. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I've laid a bit too much emphasis on its limits because I still think that the capacity of, of fitrah is, is is quite a substantial. Um, I think, so going back again to this idea that we have been endowed with certain cognitive capacities as per our fitrah, reason is one of those. Right. And... So we might think that um, reason enables us to form certain beliefs and that when we utilize reason properly, we will or we ought to even form certain beliefs. Mm. So I think as per our rational faculties, we ought to believe that one and one equals two. Mm. There would be a mistake (laughs) clearly with our rational faculties if we were forming the, the the conclusion that the, that the, uh, that it's three rather than two, right? So, I would think that um, as per our nature, when we're using reason properly, we ought to believe in God. Mm. So, it's uh, reason is is connected to fitra in that sense, in that we have been created upon fitra with certain faculties, and that endows that faculty with um, an inclination as to what sort of beliefs it ought to form. Mm. So that's the f- first part of um, uh, an answer to the first part of the question. Maybe the mm. the other aspect um, about the deficiency yeah. in in Iman. Are we deficient? You know, if, if you know, I was born a Muslim. You know, in the sense I was born within a Muslim family, and so yeah. I grew up as a as a Muslim, and I was socialized into the faith, like. Is there a requirement for me to go through a process of reasoning my beliefs mm-hmm. in order for me to have strong iman in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Yeah, so that is an interesting question and it is a question that's present in classical theological really? discussions. Yeah. So you have, you know, different, there's a spectrum and, mm. and people are going one way or the other way or they're trying to find a center ground. So you have this concept um, that comes from the Kalam tradition, which is called, um, or it's a principle, not a concept, wujub al-nadhar, mm. which basically means the duty or obligation to use reason discursively, right. um, to reflect rationally and to form belief in God using reason. Right. And that is an obligation upon a Muslim, according to this tradition. Mm. But what question that arises here is what constitutes nadar here like what would satisfy that obligation Mm. so some 
in the tradition thought that it needs to be like a philosophical proof and maybe even uh, responses to objections to the proof and so on. It's quite oh, a high bar. That's it? a pretty high bar. Yeah. And hence, uh, I mean, I'm not saying this is a majority opinion, but this I think is a minority opinion. And hence, um, some theologians accused that minority of, of, of theologians of making mass tech fear, essentially. <laughs> Other um, theologians within the Kalam tradition thought that Nadar is still necessary because they wanted to condemn taklid or blindly following one's um, social environment. Mm. Um, because if we look at in the Quran, um, the uh, polytheists in Mecca are condemned because they want to follow the religion of their forefathers, exactly. right? Yeah. So some thought that nadar just means, say, uh, reflecting upon nature and upon creation and thinking about it. Yeah. Um, and then there are even still others in the tradition who reject that principle and think actually that belief by way of testimony, if you're in the right testimonial tradition and you're following that testimonial line mm. from from the from where you are down to the prophet, um, then then that's okay. Um, and the the sense in which it's okay or not okay also differs. So on one end, the extreme, they're saying, well, if you don't satisfy this principle, you're not really a Muslim, or maybe you're a Muslim, but not a mu'min or a true believer. Mm. Others are saying, no, you're still a believer, but you're sinful or okay. something like that. Okay. There's still this duty. So, so those are some of the discussions. I mean, I think that, um, you know, requiring a philosophical proof, I think that's just um, wrongheaded mm. and I think it's unnecessary. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't think that somebody's iman would be deficient because they don't know philosophy or they don't have a good philosophical argument. And I yeah. think this, um, this is where the idea of fitra comes back in. So if we do have this basic theistic disposition and if this disposition is working well and reliably, just as, say, my perceptual faculties or my memory, when it's working well, I can form true beliefs about, about God. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I think that might be all that's required. And does it matter where you are? I mean, if you live in a, in a generally, in an Islamic society, you lived in Qayyasha here, in, in Bashaksha here, which is right. an Islam probably for, for many, right? So it's a very strong conservative environment and everyone tends to be going to the mosque and the mosques are full and Islam is practiced and there isn't very much going on which is against Islam yeah. in, in that community in Istanbul. Um, is it likely or... Could you argue that the person living there isn't really going to have to, their faith isn't going to be tested yeah. in a conceptual way? Yeah. Like maybe someone living in Leeds or in London where, you know, all around us there are, there are conceptual intellectual arguments against the faith. And so we have to be a little bit more uh, aware of those arguments and maybe engage with those arguments in order to keep uh, within the parameters of faith, I mean, is there a is there an argument there about the the yeah. context in which you live? Yeah, no, I, I think there is an argument in the sense that typically um, rationality, being reasonable, is is thought of as being person relative. Mm. So, um, you know, what might be rational for one person to believe might not be rational for another person to believe, given their um, given the evidence and background knowledge they have. So. Suppose somebody's a uh, couple of detectives are trying to figure out who committed this 
particular crime and one detective has background knowledge pertaining to the facts, the, the fingerprints on the murder weapon, CCTV footage, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It would be reasonable and rational for them on the basis of that evidence and background knowledge to form the belief that say it was, it was John who did yeah. it. Yeah. But the other detective who doesn't have that uh, evidence and background knowledge, well, it probably wouldn't be reasonable for them to, um, to conclude one way or another. Mm. So I think that Muslims in majority Muslim societies and say people who are not exposed to philosophy and the like, they will just not have the, the, the philosophical acumen or tools to even understand, let alone address these objections. Mm. And I think, you know, there's this idea in moral philosophy that ought implies can. Like you can, you're only obligated to do something if you can actually, if you can actually do it. You, you're not going to be hold morally accountable or responsible if something is beyond your control. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, a Muslim grandmother living in Bashak Shahir yes. cannot be obligated to um, engage in philosophical reasoning because she can't. <laughs> she doesn't know how to do that. Yeah. So yeah, I think. Uh, that, that's a fair point. Ask you, Ben, about thinking, because thinking can get us into trouble. Now, at the risk of sounding like I'm a, I don't know, a Luddite. And this is the Thinking Muslim podcast. It's the so Thinking Muslim podcast. Careful. But, you know, I, I'll give you a, a, a quick anecdote. You know, a friend of mine who, or a person I know who is a, a courier driver, you know, he's not yeah. a, he's he's not someone who, you know, he, he's lived in an Islamic environment, doesn't have any Iman problems. You know, he lives a good Muslim life. You know, he, he told me about a friend of his who was studying philosophy. And by studying philosophy, he had uh, had a crisis of faith. And, and now his Islam was was pretty doubtful. Right. And so he asked me to come in and speak to this friend of his. And you know, after trying to reason with this person, it, it just became clear to me that he was obstinate. He, he didn't want to change his ways. And he had come to a, a view about the way he wanted to live his life and that had impacted the way he thought about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Islam. Yeah. Now, maybe the, I drew the wrong conclusion from that and the conclusion was, well, you know, this, here we go, there's a courier driver, you know, who, alhamdulillah, is successful. You know, he is someone yeah. that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would, you know, has described as the one who is successful, right? You know, he, yeah. inshallah ta'ala, he's someone who who lives a good Islamic life. And yet you've got this person who's gone to university and he's thinking, uh, <laughs> but it's taken him off the path mm -hmm. of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Mm -hmm. And I suppose the comment I made afterwards was that maybe sometimes thinking can be bad for us. Have I, is that comment wrong for me to me? You know, I mean, it was, it was the comment I made sooner as I left and I had yeah. to, I had to contemplate whether that was correct or not to say, but yeah, t tell me what, well, what's going the, on there. The trouble with that, statement is of course you have to think to form that judgment true right so yeah. you you can't get you can't get around thinking um you know but i think to use a word yeah i think that you know we we, we have like say uh, this this philosophy student whatever um mm. you know when, when you when you study philosophy uh, you're supposed to study logic and you're supposed to study how to reason and so on um so yeah i mean Look, we have an ability and a capacity to reason, but it is a skill, yeah. uh, and skills need fine tuning, and and you know, just as other skills need fine tuning, you know, 
somebody who tries to ride a bicycle the first time probably not going to succeed somebody who tries to drive a car the first time probably not going to succeed mm -hmm. so we have an ability to reason that ability needs to be um, trained or fine-tuned in some sense mm -hmm. now there's just there's one aspect of it which is um training in the sense of developing an ability to reason logically mm. so that's going to help for you to do philosophy but what about theology so theology is the study of god so what kind of training and background do we need to think about god properly um maybe from our point of view we need to consider god's revelation um what god has told us about himself in his own words, if we are to think about him properly. So I think if somebody's not embedded within that framework, say, um, then they're liable to make mistakes and mm. be unreliable in their theology and their thinking about God. Mm. Um, so yes, if we don't have that um, embeddedness within the framework, um, our ability on, on our own or by ourselves to get us to the truth um, might not always hit the mark. But isn't it scary? I mean, you know, you, you uh, study philosophy, you're a philosopher, and, you know, we know that large numbers of Muslims today are studying for social sciences and, and are going into philosophy and, and these sorts of disciplines. Yet, uh, I do fear that uh, without, I don't know, limits is probably the wrong word, but some frameworks to think in, they are going to be sucked into cover. Mm -hmm, into mm -hmm, disbelief. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that a is that a, a warranted fear? You know, as yeah. someone who studies the uh, the discipline. Yeah. No, definitely. I mean, when you enter into a philosophical setting, classroom <laughs> discussion, everything is up for grabs. Right. Your religion is not given some kind of special privilege, as it would be when you're in a Islamic seminary or, or something. So, you know, everything's up for grabs and the question of whether God exists or whether Islam is true is up for grabs too. So clearly um, that could lead people to make errors yeah. uh, and come up with conclusions which do lead them away um, from God if they don't also have this embeddedness within the tradition. So I think yeah. this is what I was getting at, yeah. that if we want to get our theology straight, um, it's not likely that we're going to do it just all on our own thinking and speculating and doing armchair philosophy mm. but we need some guidance and hence god sent us the quran and so if we don't have that embeddedness um within that um quranic framework then yeah i think we will will be led to uh, astray in some sense yeah do you think that maybe in, in the summer holidays prior to going to university you know we should think about having courses you know led by some people like yourself where you establish some of the, the frameworks that a Muslim student needs to develop in order to approach these social sciences. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you think that's a good idea? No, I think it's an excellent idea. Yeah. yeah. I don't know whether I'd be the one to, to go ahead and run it, but yeah, it'd be a good idea nonetheless. Okay. So let's let's come back to the idea of fitra and, yeah. and just try to, you know, I think alhamdulillah, I've got a really good appreciation of this concept uh, today for you. Jazakallah that's right. really, really great. So um, uh, you touched on this, but uh, Fitra, can it give us, uh, can it lead us to conclude that lying is a bad idea, killing is bad, 
can we naturally form these judgments about the actions that people undertake? Yeah. So I do think that we have a basic moral sense or intuition as human beings. I think if you look across human history and, and human civilization, you do find that things like murder, uh, rape, theft, and so on have almost universally been condemned. So a question that immediately rises is why? Mm. What is it about uh, human beings such that they are universally, wherever it may be on the globe, forming these similar moral beliefs? Well, one explanation is that we have a moral sense, a moral capacity to recognize the good and the bad. So, um, yeah, uh, lying, you know, um, I mean, that's a controversial one because some uh, people might think in certain contexts it's okay to lie hmm. others if you're kantian um you, you know you would uh, be likely to think otherwise but i think on certain fundamental points as i said murder rape theft and so on uh, how far does that go i mean you know fasting yeah does one ha- have an incli- inclination towards fasting or towards yeah well i think fasting is not um an inclination towards fasting i don't think that's a moral issue per okay. se all right um Although from a sh- it is uh, from a Sharia perspective, mm. I suppose. But no, I, I don't really know, frankly. Okay. Yeah. Uh, when uh, lots of Muslims want to do da'wah, they want to speak to non-Muslims, they want to convince them they may have people they know at uh, school and colleges, and some people do this very effectively. You know, they've yeah. got friends and they bring them to, to Islam. Um, how much should we be aware of the discussion about fitra in our discussions with those non-Muslims, because often mm-hmm. we go armed with lots of rational arguments, which are, of course, important, and you've described their importance, especially mm-hmm. in the society in which we live. But is there a should we be cognizant of this fitri idea when placing those rational arguments? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I think in discussions with people who don't believe in God, I think it you know one way to to go about it is just to reel off a lot of um, rational philosophical arguments. But it seems to me that very often it's not those arguments which are pushing them away from um, religious belief. Often um, they might have been exposed to, you know, they might have a bad experience with religious folk or with a particular religion. There might be some underlying emotional, spiritual reason. So one one way in which you might approach it, as I say, is rational argument. Maybe another way is to think about, and I'm just putting this out there, um, what are the existential or practical benefits of faith? So um, somebody might say, well, um, I have various needs. I have this need for meaning, for cosmic purpose. Mm. I have this desire to be loved, to be protected or something like that. Mm. And belief in God satisfies these desires. Therefore, belief in God is reasonable mm. on, on a practical level for mm-hmm. a person. So I think practical reasons are also relevant here. But the other thing I'd like to say is that when we think about God and, and, and the evidence for God, um, one question we might ask is what would evidence for God look like? Yeah. What's the sort of evidence we should expect from God? And so this is how I look at it. I think that evidence for God would basically satisfy two principles. One, it would be widely accessible to people, Mm. human beings of 
of all backgrounds, of all capacities, of, of all thinking. capacities. Yeah, right. it's not just for the philosophers. Mm. You know, if we, from a Quranic perspective, God created us to worship Him and hence know Him, mm. and that's human beings and jinn as well um, across the board, yes. right? Yeah. So that's the first thing. There's this wide accessibility thing, and then I would like to say though that. The evidence, although it might be widely accessible, it might in some sense be resistible. Mm. So consider that, you know, if God made evidence of him so overwhelmingly compelling and obvious, it would take away this um, notion of human beings yearning for God, desiring God, finding him and developing this deep interpersonal relationship. Mm. God would already be compelled upon them if his evidence was that obvious. And I think within this domain of resistibility, that's where moral and spiritual um, virtues or vices might be relevant. Mm. So that this longing, desiring, yearning, seeking of God might become very relevant there. And rather than the, say, philosophical acumen. Mm. And so that will be relevant maybe to consider with somebody who doesn't believe. I heard from a, a scholar, and in fact, I think this is shared by a number of uh, uh, Muslims today of a particular persuasion, but when you live in a city, when you live amongst, you know, in a place where there's bricks and mortar and there's concrete buildings, there's, yeah. you know, outside here, we've got the Bank of England up the road, and it's, right. it's pretty, it's just material around us that we are distanced from our fitra. But when you live in a countryside area, you live in a in a forest, you visit, you know, you, you see the wildlife and animals, you are closer to your fitri self. I mean, is there a, is that, does that chime with your understanding of what fitra is? Well, I mean, the, there's one thing here that um, I think I, it was some time ago that I, I, I caught sight of a video by Sheikh Hamza Yusuf. Hmm. And, uh, and he was talking about you know, the, the majesty and glory, uh, gloriousness and magnificence of the stars at night, which you get to experience if you're in the desert. Yeah. But you don't experience that because of light pollution in the city. True. And he basically said, um, this is one of the reasons why atheism is, is uh, prevalent. Yeah. Uh -huh. Because yeah. we can't see the stars. Yeah. The point that I think Hamza Yusuf was making is that um, when we're in and amongst the natural world, um, Say, if we think, if God exists and he wants to know us and he's set up um, maybe signs uh, or, or pieces of evidence to uh, bring us close to him, uh, it seems to me that nature might just be the thing because uh, we do seem to have these overwhelmingly like transcendent experiences sometimes in, in nature when we're um, in the country or we're up a mountain or we're looking at the splendor of the horizon and yeah. the starlit night sky. So maybe in those environments, we're closer to um, being in a position to have our theistic disposition to come out, uh, to be manifest. Yes. So maybe that's one way of thinking about it. I mean, you don't have to have a comment on this, but I used to know a guy, a friend of mine, who used to work in the city and <laughs> he would walk out of his building, his tall building every day and, and see the Mercedes and the cars parked outside and say, this this makes me want to believe in God more. And, you know, he, I'm not sure how, what, what the connection was, but, you know, he, he seemed to have come to a view that 
you know, that the Mercedes, which I suppose it does, right? You know, it, it yeah. does ultimately. But I, I presume, you know, a tree would take you there quicker than a car. Probably. You know? Yeah. I think maybe this individual was thinking about, like, it is pretty amazing what human beings can do. Wow. Yes. And 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 maybe that is is the sign there wow. that is it really likely that by chance or by accident human beings have just um you know popped up and have this extraordinary intelligence and capacity and conscious agents are able to make such a thing like a mercedes car right without there being a creator or something ah, so there i was thinking he's just become a capitalist <laughs> you've uh, you've uh explain that to me okay so one last question for you um stephen fry says that bone cancer in children is a key argument is an argument against a merciful creator i mean how would you respond to to stephen fry yeah i remember this viral clip yes uh yes so i think there are roughly like three ways we could we could approach this and i think though each of these ways we find within our tradition so one way, and this is broadly, it seems to me, an Ashari uh, approach within the Kalam tradition, mm. is to just say that moral evaluative judgments made about God are just an anathema. They just are irrelevant, doesn't make sense. Mm. Why? Because they want to say that there is no standard of goodness outside of God, mm. which he has to adhere to. Um, or by which we judge him. Right. Such that whenever God wills something, that that is good. Given his nature, mm. whatever God wills, that is good. Right? So, An earthquake or a thunderstorm. Whatever the case may be. Right. So this is, um, in, in some sense, a radical position, mm. um, but that would be one approach to just deny this whole idea of uh, there being a standard of goodness outside of God by which we judge him. Mm. Others might not necessarily take that route and they might think, well, okay, uh, maybe there isn't a standard of goodness outside of God by which we judge him um, because God is goodness himself. Mm. Uh, God is the good, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, but given our own understanding of what is good, right? We, we have, for instance, we know it's wrong to torture children just for the sake of it something like that yeah that's clearly evidently wrong so we we can have some idea of what a good god would do and what he wouldn't do like he wouldn't command that kind of thing mm. um and so those in this camp would want to say well um yeah we can offer um evaluative judgments about god's actions um in principle but when it comes to god's um God permitting evil and suffering in the world, God has certain overriding reasons for allowing it. Mm. There is certain wisdom in the presence of suffering. So a couple of examples. Um, and, and, and I want to note that it, it is difficult uh, when you look at particular instances. It's much easier when you're talking about it in general, mm. right? Mm. So it's very difficult to look at particular instances instance and say well i know the reason is exactly this that and the other yeah but there are more general reasons which can encompass say the bone cancer in children or the, the example that you you gave mm -hmm. so one of them is free free will right 
so that there is a certain value in humans being endowed with freedom of choice and responsibility. Without that, moral virtues um, that we can acquire as human beings and the good of that, the good of becoming compassionate, empathetic, uh, understanding, patient, loving, is not possible if we don't have free will, right? If we are compelled to act in a certain way, mm -hmm. you can't attribute any goodness or badness to that particular agent because they've just been compelled. Mm -hmm. So free will is a great good and, and, and great thing. And unfortunately, <laughs> clearly, um, humans have then the capacity to do things that are not good, mm -hmm. right? But if you eradicate that, you, you eradicate the capacity to do good and all of the great and valuable things that come with that. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's one, one element. And that's um, also related to this idea of soul building or soul making or something like that. Mm -hmm. But related to that, and this now touches on the idea of natural evil, evil that comes by way of earthquakes or tsunamis or these natural diseases, is the idea that if God is to give human beings moral choice, freedom and responsibility, because that's a great good, mm -hmm. um, then God can only do so if he sets up the world according to certain natural laws or regularities. So, for instance, if, um, say, we, we know that when, when we, if we uh, put a bullet in the gun and we fire it, uh, then the bullet will, will, will come out, right? Mm -hmm. And we know that because given the nature of guns and bullets, that it follows that regular pattern. Yeah. But suppose there was no regularity and we had no idea whether it's going to shoot, whether it's not going to shoot. In a world like that, uh, it would be very difficult for humans to have moral responsibility over their actions and choices because they wouldn't be able to um, determine the outcome of their, of their actions. Mm. And so it might be the case that God has to, if he wants to achieve this great good of humans having moral choice, freedom and responsibility um, to become, uh, to acquire these virtues, um, it might be the case that God needs to set the world up according to natural laws and regularities. And it might be that an offshoot of those natural laws and regularities is certain disasters as well. Mm -hmm. And note that those disasters also give opportunities for humans to do great good. If we take the example recently in Turkey, mm -hmm. this terrible, disastrous incident. Earthquake, yeah. The earthquake. Yeah. And yet there is great good in human striving and all of the virtues that come about with humans responding to that. Now that good is not possible if there's no earthquake yeah emotionally of course this doesn't do and i'm not trying to uh, i would never you know use this to satisfy somebody's um own sufferings and so yes. on yeah uh, they need to be consoled but intellectually that's one way to look at it. the third way is the following and sometimes in in philosophy religion this is called skeptical theism so do you know in the quran there's a verse in the second chapter in surah al-baqarah um where uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, God tells the angels that he's going to create this khalifa, this representative vicegerent on the earth, the human being. Yeah. Uh, and the angels respond by saying, you know, what will you create uh, that one who will cause bloodshed and corruption on the land? Mm -hmm. And God replies and says, I know that which you don't know. Yes. So skeptical theism is the idea that we should be skeptical 
about what we can reasonably say about God in certain instances. So we know that God in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is um, infinitely good and infinitely wise. Mm. So given his nature, we know he must have a morally sufficient reason for allowing the, the suffering. Maybe it is to do with free will. Maybe it is to do with soul building, soul making, and so on. But even if God does have a reason, why should we think that we'd know about it? Yes. Why should we think that we would have access to those reasons? Because yeah. God is, you know, um, Soren Kierkegaard, the famous existentialist Danish philosopher said, there is an infinite qualitative difference between humans and God. Mm. So why think we as limited human beings would have access to God's reasons? And so, um, yeah, we could rest content. And I think this is where virtues like and trust in God come that we know God is good. We know he's fully wise. So he must have a reason. Mm. Why think I'd know it? It's been fascinating and it's, uh, you've allowed this Wolfenstein boy to understand a quite a complex subject in an easy way. So I thank you very much for that. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Please remember to subscribe to our social media and YouTube channels and head over to our website thinkingmuslim.com to sign up to my weekly newsletter. Jazakallah khair. 